You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hello and welcome to the Prehistories podcast with me, Kim Bidolf. Now, plenty of stories are told about prehistory, some by professional storytellers and some by professional seekers of knowledge about this period. And it's the latter that we've got in this episode. Today, uh, we're discussing Archer Journey to Stonehenge by Jane Brain. And we have Jane Brain with us. Hello, Jane. Hello, Kim. Hi. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to talk to me about the book. And thank you so much for sending me a copy, actually. That was very kind. Well, it's a great pleasure. And thank you also for your review. I was really grateful for that. Lovely. Oh, you're welcome. Yes, um, some listeners will know that I have a a website where I recommend things to teachers who are teaching about the... um, uh, the Stone Age to Iron Age topic in England and so Jane's book was one of those and we'll get on to why in a second. So Jane you're a, a professional archaeological illustrator is that right? I guess it is really yes it's something I've been doing for many many years now and um, something I fell into by accident and I've continued to do whenever the opportunity arises really. So what kind of things do you illustrate is it is it mainly reconstruction drawings or do you illustrate finds as well and things like that? I have done a little finds illustration, but I, I sort of came into doing reconstruction illustrations very early on. Um, I, I got involved on the Stonehenge Environs project way back in the early 80s, mm. um, as I say, completely by accident, um, and did some site drawing and, and a bit of finds drawing as well. And then at the end of um, the project, the Stonehenge Environs project, uh, Julian Richards managed to secure some funding for um, a little guidebook, um, and he asked me to illustrate it. Um, so that was the first bit of uh, reconstruction work that I ever did. Oh. And uh, yeah, that was it. End of sensible career as a as a teacher. And, uh... <laughs> oh, I see. So you've been a teacher in the past as well. Primary? I'm trained as a teacher, and oh. I, I still teach. I teach painting. Oh, I see. So, but you yeah. trained as a te- as a school teacher. Is that... um, I did, yes, although I've never really taught in the school properly. Ah, um, but that's I, interesting. As I say, I fell into archaeology and that was it. Really. <laughs> never look back. <laughs> no. Yeah. It does, it does um, kind of suck you in, doesn't it? It does, rather. <laughs> Yeah. But Jane is not my only guest, although I'm 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 doubly privileged today. Um, thank you, Jane, because um, I'm also joined by Andrew Fitzpatrick. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Kim. Now, um, you you did work in commercial archaeology, didn't you, a while ago, and um, actually led the excavation um, for the of the principal character in Jane's book. That's right. I used to work for Wessex Archaeology for, for many years, and. One Friday evening, just before the May Bank holiday, we stumbled across the the man who we now know as the Amesbury Archer. Yeah, uh, so it, it was quite a sensational um, find, really, in many many ways, and we'll talk about all of those. And I can see why he he needs to be the the ca- main character of a book, and and that's great because he now is. Um, but tell us what you're working on at the moment. Well, uh, I now work for the University of Leicester, and I've moved away from the beginning of the Metal Ages in Britain, and I'm working at the end of the Iron Age on a project on Julius Caesar. Wow. I'm uh, running a project that is looking at the evidence of Julius Caesar's invasions of Britain, and I'm optimistic that we're going to identify, for the first time, some of the places that Julius Caesar visited when he came just over 2,000 years ago. Wow, that would be amazing. It's a bit different, isn't it, working in the late Iron Age, because you've got you've got to deal with writing, which is a bit weird. Well, if Julius Caesar <laughs> hadn't said he came to Britain, we, we might not have figured it out for a long time. Mm. But 
that's one of the things about working in commercial archaeology is that you have to work across all periods. You don't get to choose the things no. that you work on. Um, and although I've always been interested in prehistoric times, I've had to work on Roman and medieval sites. But my first choice would always be the Iron Age. So the Eighth Archer represents a, a detour into the earlier prehistory. So that, oh, that's funny because that's what I know you for, Andrew. <laughs> and yet it's not it's not your thing at all. <laughs> well, some of my colleagues think I've been lost for a few years and I'm coming back to the righteous path. <laughs> ah, well, there you go. <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for spending some time because obviously your work takes you um, around Europe quite a bit, doesn't it? It does. And, and one of the, the great things for me personally with the, the discovery of the Andrew Archer is how it has allowed me to work with colleagues all the way across Europe and to share some of the interest that this remarkable find has stimulated in Europe, but even around the world. So it's been a great privilege to be involved in the discovery and work with my colleagues to bring it to the public attention. It is an amazing thing. So tell us... Um more about that the, the the burial then andrew i mean what what was it that you actually found well we were excavating the site of a new school and we knew that there were two roman burial grounds on the site of the school and because archaeologists get involved with the planning process we were able to just move the design of the school so that one of the cemeteries was preserved under the playing fields right. and that the people still rest in peace there. But one we had to excavate. But as well as the Roman graves, there were a couple of other graves just on the edge of the site. And we weren't sure what date these graves were until we excavated them. And they turned out to be the graves of the Amesbury Archer and his companion. And for the Amesbury Archer, the, the typical burial of this time, of someone who we would call a, a member of the Beaker people, or Beaker folk, uh, men and women were buried in, in similar but slightly different ways. So men would be tucked up on the left-hand side as if they were asleep. Women would be tucked up on the other side, and the heads would be either at the north or the south, depending what sex you were. So burial of the Ainsbury Archer, in, in many ways, it's a very typical burial. It's what you would expect. What was really surprising was just the number of things that the mourners had placed around him. And so before we found the Ainsbury Archer, what we might call a rich grave, that's measured by the kind of things the mourners place in the, in the grave along the side of the dead person, we might have said had four or five objects, exceptionally there might be ten, but with the Amesbury Archer there were more than a hundred objects. Yeah. So the main thing was just the sheer number of finds, and that had another side to it in that the finds came in multiples. So instead of having one copper knife, which would, be, would have been very unusual, the Amesbury Archer has three yeah. and if we turn to him as an archer instead of even a quiver of arrows he has almost 20 he has far more than he could need or the wrist guards that would protect the wrist of the Amesbury archer and other archers from the lash of the bowstring he has two of those so there's just multiples of in many ways typical finds but when you add them all up there is no other burial of this time anywhere in Europe that compares to it. So it really was a quite remarkable discovery. Yeah, it really was. I mean, there are other things about it that we'll get to as well. Once once you get get him back in the lab, there are some surprises, aren't there? But um, Jane, you were the first person to actually draw the archer, weren't you? Is that right? I was, yes. Yeah, I had a phone call from Andrew. I'm not sure how many days. Probably the following Monday, I think, or Tuesday, um, he called me um, and said that they needed an illustration really quickly um, and explained what they'd found. Um, and, you know, naturally, I was really excited by it yeah. and realised instantly that it was something hugely important. Um, so I whizzed down to West Archaeology in Salisbury, which is about 
I don't know, 35 miles from where I live, um, and began to talk to people and to look at what they got. Um, talked to Andrew, of course, and then went out and had a look at the site and very quickly started to, to put an illustration together, um, which I, I, I did within the space of a week, I think. Wow. And yeah. is that the one where he's looking away from the viewer? Yes, the, it's the one where he's, one. He's, he's, he's fixing an arrow. He's, he's um, sort of tying his, his arrowhead back onto the, uh, onto the shaft standing up on the King Barrow Ridge and looking down towards Stonehenge. Yes. Oh, yes, because one of the things I have failed to mention so far is that Amesbury is, of course, very close to Stonehenge. So that's um, that's a very important point about the archer. Um, and so I'll, I'll put, um, if, if I may, I'll put a copy of that image on the show notes so people can see. Um, and obviously it's, it is Jane's image. It's reused quite a lot, isn't it, all over the place? But it's good yeah, to know that it's yours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's had quite a, it's quite a currency, really. It's been, it has, yeah. yes. It's great. Yeah. And now that you, so you've written, obviously, and, and illustrated this book. So um, Archer Journey to Stonehenge, we finally got onto the book itself. It's, um, it, would you call it a picture book or a graphic novel, or, or are you not really hung um, up on... I tend to go for, for comic strips, to be honest. Comic strips. I think yeah. it's only 32 pages, so graphic novel sounds a bit grandiose. They but, do tend um, to be quite huge, don't they? <laughs> they do, they do, which this one isn't. And, and that's partly because I self-published and, you know, had to make it fairly short, um, from a cost point of view. Um, but I think also there's a real discipline in producing a standard 32-page picture book, mm. um, which which certainly makes you um, very clear about what you're you're saying. You know, not, yes. there's no room for waffle. Yeah. No, but you've managed but by making it a comic strip rather than um, uh, like a maybe a, an, a young child's picture book where you have a double-page spread of one picture and some words. Um, you have got much more of the detail of the story in. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I wanted to, you know, to cover the journey from start to finish. That was, that was my intention. Yes. Um, and to make a, an exciting story, if I possibly could. Um, and to be as rigorous as, as, as I could be um, in my interpretation of, of the findings. Yes. Um, so uh, the the journey to Stonehenge is really the biggest thing, isn't it, Andrew? Because when um, some of the, the scientific analysis of the bones, there's quite an early use of um, stable isotope analysis, wasn't it? What did that? Fi- how does that work and what did it find? Well, the isotope analyses um, are something that comes out of the chemical fingerprints that we grow up with. And... When you're small, your teeth lock in a chemical fingerprint of where you live. And there are two things it locks in. One is the temperature of the place you live. And then the other one is the age of the rocks that are beneath your feet. And because your first tooth forms, permanent tooth forms by the time you're about five, and the last one by the time you're about 13, 14 at latest, these teeth give archaeologists an index to where people were when they were 14. They don't tell us where they moved thereafter, but with the Amesbury Archer, the isotope analysis showed us that he'd been brought up in a very cold environment, somewhere that simply couldn't be in Britain. And when we looked at it in a bit more detail, it it seems likely that somewhere around the Alpine region, and this was a really exciting discovery because it was one of the first times that this kind of technique had been used in commercial archaeology. But more importantly, it was the first time that we were able to identify someone who travelled a very long distance so long ago, over 4,000 years ago. So it was really quite a remarkable result. And it was um, really quite interesting how this finally came to pass because a TV program was made about the excavation of the archer and literally on the final day of filming the results came through from the British Geological Survey in Nottingham and the TV crew rushed back to Salisbury rushed back to Salisbury to ask me to explain what this meant and I I was going I think I know what this means and 
The reason for that is that one of the objects buried with the Angry Archer is a simple black stone. It's really quite unremarkable. But I think it's a clue to the story because it's a stone tool that was used in metalworking. And the Angry Archer has the earliest gold objects and the earliest copper objects, so the earliest metal objects that have ever been found in Britain. And if he was a metal worker, he must have brought that skill and those knowledges from continental Europe with him. And so to discover that he himself had grown up somewhere far away, perhaps around the Alps, in many ways wasn't surprising in retrospect, but at the time it was a stunning discovery. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. I remember when the when the story broke um, and I'd just finished university, I think, and... Um, it was very odd because all through university we'd been told that the the beaker folk were not actually a folk and they were actually just it was just a suite of ideas that had been passed around europe and then all of a sudden there was this guy who had traveled a couple of thousand well yeah maybe a thousand miles something like that a bit more um with the earliest metal and with a beaker (laughs) so it was it, it kind of um changed the, everything again, which was really yeah, it, amazing. Um, yeah, it, it reopened the debate, yeah. and there's been a lot of work subsequently of which Jane's first painting of the Avery Archer has almost served as a poster boy. <laughs> you know, every conference and lecture you go to, you'll see Jane's uh, wonderful picture reproduced. And so one discovery reawakened a debate that had been dormant for maybe 20 or 30 years. So it had a great scientific impact, but it also caught the popular imagination. And uh, Jane's work has been really important in bringing that to the attention of a much wider public. It really is, Jane. It's, it's, um, I think the story is so much more understandable and engaging when you have images to go with it. And your your book about the journey is is lovely, isn't it? Can you tell us about the journey that you've cre- you've put down in the book that you created? Well, as Andrew says, nothing was certain um, in terms of the, the stable isotope analysis. So we we have no definite starting point. those rows of stones. who lives 
very close to me who um, is a marine archaeologist <laughs> and he actually looked at which the possibility I guess the probability is that such a journey would be made as far as possible by river and sea mm-hmm. rather than overland um, and this friend actually worked out a route from somewhere vaguely in the Jura from this area um, to Brittany and right. then to the mouth of the River Avon. Um, and so that's really the basis for um, for the journey in my story. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> well, indeed. But I, yeah, I like the fact that you, you insisted it should be Karnak, Andrew. <laughs> Why not? You know, well, I mean, I, well, clearly, clearly Brittany has importance in the early Bronze Age, doesn't it? So I think it's quite nice to include it. Um, right, we're going. To, sadly, we're going to take a, a break right now because we could just carry on talking um, and then we'll be back in a few minutes. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hi, and we're back. Um, so, Jane, I was hoping that you would be able... I usually read the extract of the books, but when we have the author on, it's always nice um, to have you talking talking um, about the book and to read an extract from it in your own voice. So I was hoping you would read about when the uncle of the archer and his sister... Um, when he, they they get into trouble, don't they? Whilst they're passing a certain warlike and uh, a violent tribe, and he gets shot by an arrow, and then um, sadly he dies. Could you read about his um, uh, his burial, of course. his funeral? My sister carried one small beaker in her pack, wrapped in soft fox fur. She meant it as a gift for her husband but now it must go with our uncle to his grave. We filled the pot with cow's milk to sustain him on his journey. In the lands which lie beyond this life, great beasts roam in the dark forests. One day we will track them together, the wolf, the bear, the boar, the mighty aurochs whose horns grow longer than a man's arm, the stag, his antlers spread wide, and the shy, spotted lynx. Until then, good hunting, uncle. Thank you, Jane. That was it's, um, and that page, page thirteen, actually is. I love the the great hunting grounds um, that the, the uncle goes to in, in in the afterlife. It's it's such um, I don't know. It's a very arresting image, actually. Well, that idea was actually suggested to me um, by a research fellow at Cambridge who I appealed to for help with um, you know with the situation with. Um, Formal um, information, shall we say? Um, and I remember talking to her early on about horses, and she said, "Oh, don't go there. Much too early." She said, <laughs> you know, if you want, if you want to really risk your reputation, and I thought, mm, maybe not. We'll have yeah. it travelled by boat. Um, but she actually came up with this idea. She said, "Why don't you um, suggest that the Beaker people um, might have had a, a belief in the hunting grounds of the afterlife?" And it, and it fits really nicely with. You know, with the, with the whole sort of the beaker par- pa- package, the warrior culture, the hunting, the bow it does, and the totem it, yeah. weapon, and so on. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that would just make such a lovely image. Um, and it brings in the idea of all the animals that were around, all the wild animals that were about. So. Exactly, in a very different that's, kind that's where of. Where it came from? Yeah, it's um, lovely. It is lovely to to think of those wild animals being around and how it's so sad to know that we've displaced them all and are uh, you know or hunted them to extinction all these amazing creatures um some of them are coming back in num- in some numbers um, they are in fact I nearly collided with a wild boar in Wiltshire a couple did of days you ago. wow <laughs> that's fantastic that's another story <laughs> but you don't feel the need to go out hunting them Sorry? You don't feel the need to go out hunting them then? No, 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 no. No, I'm a vegetarian, so... Uh, 
Ah, well done. <laughs> that deals with that one. Yes, that deals with that. Um, and you were saying that this burial that you um, you where the uncle is buried, um, you you cited it in a specific place. Well, you? it's not speci- it's not specifically uh, uh, based on on a particular burial, but I remember when I um, was telling Andrew about what was going to happen in the story, um, that he said that a burial had been found in that region. Yeah. Um, with a with a single beaker in it, so it's not actually you know at at Grand Prasini, but. So this play is it's, it's but it's it's inspired by Grand Pressigny near in the oh, Paris no, it basin. Was coinc- it was pure coincidence. I, I <laughs> came up with the idea in the story. Um, oh right. And Andrew had just read about this this, this burial. So wow. It was one of those one of those coincidences that happen when you're doing something like this. All sorts of coincidental. Well, things it's quite nice, happen. isn't it? When it yeah. it almost. Um, uh, justifies, not justifies, but it kind of um, confirms what you were thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Andrew, let's talk about these beakers then. So, uh, this they're, they're a very distinctive pot, aren't they? Yes. Um, they're not very big. Um, often, you you go if you go to a museum, you see really big pots that are thousands of years old. And these ones are just the, the size of a small teapot. And um, they're called beakers because we think that uh, people used to drink out of them. And the, um, our colleagues in, in Germany and France have a really nice way of describing them. They describe them as bell beakers because if you turn them upside down and stand them on the rim, they look like an old-fashioned church bell. So it's a very poetic name, the, the idea of a bell beaker. And often... Um, archaeologists have thought that uh, alcohol was drunk from them and now we have the techniques that allow us to look for traces of uh, food and drink in pots and sometimes we find alcohol but in the case of the Amesbury Archer we found dairy products in the pots that were put in his grave just like the the grave that James talked about. Um, So the dairying is uh, the evidence is quite quite good for well, from quite early on in the Neolithic, isn't it? Um, and um, I wonder, though, whether in later periods, um, milk products were mainly for people who were um, infirm, apart from, obviously, small children, um, and they were given to people who were suffering. And um, the Amesbury Archer was actually... Um, he did suffer at some point from an injury, didn't he? Didn't he? Yeah, he, he lost the mobility in his knee, in his left knee. And that's because um, basically his kneecap was smashed. There was really nothing left. So in life, he would have he would have limped. And my colleague, Jackie McKinley, who looked at the, the bones of the archer, was able to show that all the muscles in his body had had to adapt to this injury, which caused changes to his skeleton. So you could see that one leg had withered away, but also the shape of his, of his skeleton as a whole was, was slightly different. Um, I just want to step back to the, to the pots because, because talking about milk kind of sidetracked it there. The, the, the beaker pots are, are really important in the way that archaeologists understand what we call the beaker folk because these pots are found all the way from Ireland to Hungary, from Norway into North Africa, and they're very similar across Europe. So there's an idea of making pots and drinking and eating that's shared by communities all the way across modern Europe. And that made archaeologists think, well, what links these people together? And as a shorthand, really, we call them the beaker people. And we would argue about what that means, and we still argue about what it means. But most of these pots are found in graves. And many of the defining characteristics for the archaeologists of what we call the beaker culture are based on discoveries in graves not so much on what we find in settlements or from their temples. So a lot of the debate about the beaker folk is how people were buried and what things they put in their graves and how they were used in their journey to the next world. 
I see. And um, they're they're associated with, as you said, uh, quite early metalworking as well, aren't they? So, do you get the ins- uh, beakers before metalworking, or is it, or does it come as a a package? Ah, beakers and metalworking. It depends where you are. Is answer to that question. So in the, the earliest beakers are found in Spain, which we know from radiocarbon dating. And metallurgy is long established in Spain before beakers arrive. But in places like Britain and Ireland, the arrival of beakers and metallurgy seems to be at exactly the same time. And our explanation for that is the people who brought the knowledge of metallurgy to these islands were people who were beaker people. And so they brought those skills and that knowledge with them. So Jane, you you have put this very explicitly in the book, haven't you? Um, the archer makes his copper knife when he becomes a man. He does, as part of his initiation ceremony, if you like. Um, but what I've suggested in the book is that there's, um, there's a tier within beaker society of people who are smiths as such, although I doubt that they spent the whole of their lives working metal because the processes are not, I think, particularly um, time-consuming. But they were the people, perhaps, who controlled fire, and maybe they were the people who had contact with the gods um, and, you know, were... were, Perhaps they were... um, They were uh, people who were... um, told by um, those in the upper echelons of, of the society to, to make the metal objects. And those people like the archer and his father, the chieftain, participated in the making of those objects. I just really wanted, from the point of view of, of the story, to suggest another tier of the society. But who knows? Yeah. I mean, the archer himself um, may well have been you know, a person of very high status who was also a metal worker. Um, yeah. And I think in my story too, to, at the end, when he um, joins with the, the metal workers who are already living on Salisbury Plain, um, that he becomes part of that group and becomes himself a smith. Yes. Um, I love how you have created this, the the metalworking. It's not just a, you know, a technical process, is it? It's um, he has to cut his arm to add his blood to the to the copper molten copper. They dance around and call on the sun god and all that kind of thing. Um, so you make it clear that it's it would be a, a process imbued with its own rituals and it's um, and be and not everybody would be able to do it. So I think you've got that across really well. And then of course later on um, there is gold involved as well. Absolutely, um, and of course he, he acquires the gold after rescuing his companions from um, the slightly dodgy bunch at Karnak, who are seal hunters at Karnak, who, who are you know not sure whether they're going to let them live or not because yeah. they think they've been hunting their sacred seals. And she, he has to shoot an arrow up at the sun, and because his arrow disappears, um, they think that he's actually his arrow has actually been accepted by the sun god and they give him these gold nuggets as a as a reward as as an offering and then he sorry sorry the the seal hunting was was also something that that um came from um the research that there was actually seal hunting taking place in the bay of quiberon at that date and at that time of year wow yeah yeah. i didn't know that that's amazing that would be quite nice to, to tie that in um and suggest that they they were hunting um, for a specific purpose, and that the hunting itself was regarded as sacred. And, yeah, yeah. There's so much research that goes into a book like this, isn't there? I mean, quite a lot. Yeah, yes. every, nearly every probably. every image, presumably, had to have a specific piece of research for it. Well, it did, and then there's the, there's the, the visual research, you know, getting yes. getting the figures to look right. And, yeah. Oh well, we'll get to. I know. I want to. I want to talk about that. But um, if we stay on this gold, Andrew, the the gold that was in the archers' burial was, it's been debated what they actually were, hasn't it? But Jane has gone for the hair ring, hasn't she? Yeah, there's a, there are two 
options really. One is the little gold ornaments, which are about the size, half the size of my little finger, maybe 20, 30 millimeters long. Um, and those options are either they're worn as earrings or they're worn in the hair and they're essentially um, tress rings. And a lot of the earlier interpretations went for the idea that they were earrings. And if you ask anybody who wears earrings, they'll go, no way. Because yeah, I always wondered, um, how would that work? <laughs> so I think... The practical common sense view today is they're probably tress rings, but also we look across continental Europe, we find similar sorts of objects, not the same, like a, a regional style, and we can see that they're found by the temples. When we find the graves, they're found by the by the head at the temple. So I think it's it's a sensible uh, call to go for the the gold ornaments as being tress rings. And and, and the important thing about that is that the Avebury Archer, and these are the, the oldest gold objects we've, we've ever found in Britain so far, his face would have been adorned with gold. It would have been a magical material because one of the things about metal workers is that they change just rock into something different, something shiny, whether it's making copper or beating out little lumps of gold and transforming them. So there is... A magic to what they do and you can understand why the making of metal and the acquisition of the, the metals themselves was a magical process and that would have involved journeys to faraway places because you don't get copper or gold in many places so people had to make journeys just like the archer yes and really this idea of the archer has opened up as well the the uh, more of a, an acceptance that people were making these long journeys rather than the exchange at a distance theory that were that always held before i suppose there could well be p individuals who are taking the raw materials from place to place and taking skills and taking the beakers and so on um many very far distances like like the archer there's been some more recent stable isotope analysis of burials in Denmark hasn't there where it's shown that they've been traveling to Germany and back several times so it's quite um yeah it, it's really opened up a, a whole new understanding of uh of this period which is fantastic um but the gold yes yeah, I never worked out how those gold um rings could be worn in the ear because they're kind of like a, a cylinder with um, a lo one loop going over the top, aren't they? So you can see how they could be almost um, pressed onto uh, a dreadlock or a or a plat or something like that to stay in. But you can't. You uh, it's difficult to see how they'd be put in the ear unless they're pushed into into the ear like a labrette or something like that with a big hole. <laughs> and then you wouldn't see half of the of the gold because it'd be behind. It'd be the other side of the ear. I'll have a picture of these tress rings, or what we think are tress rings, um, in the show notes as well, and uh, listeners can make their own mind up about that. <laughs> but also, if you think about it, you've got the gold and you've got the copper, and they go eventually to Stonehenge. He's buried near Stonehenge. He clearly went to Stonehenge. And um, uh, they're, there, they're obviously worshipping the sun god. I think that's pretty much accepted now isn't it do either of you want to talk about that <laughs> well i suppose i should let andrew talk about it really but who knows it, it seems a logical way to go i guess um and one of my starting points was um the cemetery at uh, sion in switzerland the petit chasseur beaker period cemetery yeah. um and there seems to be evidence there for sun worship too so oh, yes it, it seemed logical to suggest that perhaps that was go what was going on. So what's the evidence there? Sensible to suggest. Yeah. Um, that skulls were placed facing the rising sun. Ah, lovely. Yes. So, so at, at Pitti Chasseur, the, the, there are a series of uh, stone tombs, and, and those tombs uh, reuse um, gravestones from an earlier date, and those gravestones have pictures or representations of people on them, and, and a lot of the detail the costume that Jane shows uh, comes from those uh, gravestones of Petit Chasseur. So it's like these are real Copper Age textiles or, or yeah. leather that is, is, being, is being shown. 
but to come to, to Stonehenge, I, I think it, it, most people would now agree that Stonehenge is it's all to do with the sun. And for a long time, we used to think that summer solstice, that the longest day and the rising of the sun on the longest day was the most important thing. But if you stand in the middle of Stonehenge, if you're lucky enough to be able to go there, you'll see that on the shortest day, the sun sets to the northwest. And if you stand and look to the northwest from the middle of Stonehenge, the biggest of the trilithons, these big arrangements of stones that look like goalposts, the sun sets through the middle of the largest trilithon. And it's like a door. It's like you're looking through the door and that's the end of the shortest day. And after that, the days draw out and slowly, very slowly, the earth warms and crops begin to grow, birds begin to come back, animals breed. And so it's like the, the changing of the year. And so Stonehenge, which is circular, like the shape of the sun and the moon, the individual stone settings within it reflect the passing of the sun through the year, through the longest day to the shortest day. And so the change in archaeological thinking has been not so much that the solstices aren't important, but it's the shortest day, not the longest day. And that light is very precise and clear in midwinter. But in summer, it's very soft and diffuse. You never really see the sun come up because it's light before it comes over the horizon. Ah, that's very interesting. Now, we have that's why I focused on, on, on the, the midwinter, midwinter sun to sunset yeah. in the book. Yes, I think it is the most important. We're going to take a little break now and then I'm going to read an extract of the mid uh, from from your book, Jane. Hey podcast fans, check out the Arc 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash arc365. That's A-R-C-H-365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash arc365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Hello, we're back again. Now I'm going to, we've been talking about Stonehenge and obviously quite a lot of, um, uh, uh, there has been quite a lot of talk about Stonehenge over the years and there still will be for for years to come, I'm sure. And I, um, I think it is, uh, lovely that you've concentrated on the midwinter solstice and the sunset over the great trilithon. Um, the, I mean, really, when you've got the avenue leading up to um, Stonehenge, which will bring you to Stonehenge to see that phenomenon, not to see the other one. The other one, you have to be at Stonehenge already to see the midsummer sunrise, don't you? Mm-hmm. But the yeah. the way that the the avenue actually brings you to Stonehenge to see the opposite phenomenon um, is uh, really is extra in, um, kind of evidence for it, I think. Um, so if I'm going to just read a little bit, this is um, when they if, uh, the archer kind of shoves his way into the um, midwinter solstice ceremony at uh, Stonehenge. The sun god is dying. Don't leave us. Come back, shine again, bring us life. The people are grieving, light the torches. The tinder's too damp. Quick, there's a spark. I know the sun god will return. His golden flesh shines in the dark. Look, he's got gold. I've never seen gold. Get out of the way. Who is he? One of those beaker makers. They can talk to the sun god. <laughs> which i think is wonderful he comes and he's wearing gold and he's got they bring fire as well and they take over the ceremony there at which the keepers of stonehenge are not very happy about <laughs> <laughs> it was a little difficult to, to work out how i could make it dramatic with these tiny tiny pieces of gold how they would actually have been visible I like how you did that. You kind of made them little shining. They've got a shining aura around them, haven't they? They have. They're glowing. They're glowing in the dark. Yes. But I guess if everything is nothing, it would have shone like gold. 
it would have been quite quite unusual well very unusual for the people and something that would catch their eye as it would be glinting and reflecting the light from torches and so on and i think we have to realize just how few possessions people had and how Mm. simple objects were and how few things were shiny um to have something shiny and yellow the color of the sun would have been just beyond people's experience and beyond their imagining perhaps Mm. yeah Yeah. um so we've got so stonehenge and the um are, are they? Do they go to Durrington Walls, or is this slightly after Durrington Walls in the book? Because um, I, yeah, I, I focus simply on Stonehenge because mm. I wanted to keep things very clear. So I, I haven't touched on Durrington Walls at all. And you'll probably notice in the illustrations that you don't see too much of the landscape. Yeah. Um, because I wanted to keep it simple. I didn't want to get involved with other monuments. <laughs> Although you do have the Bluestone Henge, don't you? The Amesbury Henge. We do, yes. Yeah. But of course, that's gone by the time that the archer arrives. But it, it, it's important in terms of the avenue and the course of the avenue. So yes, yes, I, I did include that. Yeah. Uh, with the permission, with permission of Mike Parker Pearson and his. Oh, did you? <laughs> that's <laughs> interesting. I love it. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. If you have to get permission, well, you didn't have to get permission. Obviously, you could have done it yourself. But, but to, the idea of getting permission to feature a fictionalized account of um, what is it? Is it is it intellectual copyright? The the um, uh, knowledge yes. about that. I mean, that? I'm, it's something I'm quite sensitive to because people often use my illustrations or have used yeah. my illustrations as a basis for others. Um, and I was using one of the illustrations in Mike Parker Pearson's book right. as a basis for mine. So I thought it was only polite so, and courteous yes. to... Um, so it was the image yeah. that you were, rather than the, the, the image, idea yeah, of it? Rather, not the idea, but the image that I uh, but I am quite interested in this this idea of um, who owns the the rights to like the Amesbury Archer, you know Andrew, you you dug him up and and Jane, you were the first to draw him. So do you could could only you work on this book? You know, is anyone would anyone else would people think it was weird if someone else did this book? Anyone could do it. Absolutely anyone. I mean, I had. But would you have felt upset if someone else had done the done a book like this before you? Um, I don't know. If I would have felt upset, but I, I just felt it was something I really wanted to do, um, and I felt a sense of responsibility also to the people who'd been involved with the excavation um, yeah. to get it. There's, there's no way of getting it right, but to do it in the right way felt very important. Yes. Yeah, and, and Jane was absolutely the right person to write and illustrate her book because she's been involved right from the beginning. So the, the reason why I called Jane to ask her to make a painting was the day the name Amesbury Archer was named the Amesbury Archer, and that was by the BBC on the six o'clock news. Huh. And I'd been saying uh, that metal was very rare, and most people would never have seen metal before. And we'd done the interview, then a little bit later, uh, a phone call came through from the picture research saying, well, we're at the beginning of the Bronze Age. Have you got any pictures of Bronze Age chieftains? To which the answer was, "Uh, I don't think so. So on the six o'clock news, when it was broadcast, the BBC put up a picture of a Bronze Age chieftain over a thousand years later who was groaning under the weight of metal with a metal helmet, a metal chest plate. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, that's not the beginning of the Bronze Age, that's the end. We need a picture that shows the beginning of the Bronze Age. And so I called Jane. But Jane also worked with other bits uh, of the stories. So she helped with the museum displays in the first in the, the very first exhibitions and her first painting is in Salisbury Museum. But also the, the school which was being built or was to be built after our excavations is known as the Amesbury Archer School. And that school takes as a theme the archaeology. And so each of the classes is named after something archaeological. And Jane painted murals through the school. And so her fingerprint is across so many things to do with the story of the Amesbury Archer artistically and creatively. She was just the right person to do this book. Yes. 
Yes, I think so too. I think it would not have been quite the same if someone else had written and illustrated it. But um, I'm just interested in the idea that do we feel that there are certain people who are more qualified to do this than others? Um, I, th- I don't think it's a case of being more qualified, but I I knew people to talk to. I suppose mm. I was able to talk to people because you, you still can't really pick up a book off the shelf and read about the Beaker period. No. In a, in general terms, you know. Indeed, so, yeah. And were you, um, sorry, Jane, were you also specifically thinking about schools and children using this now that there's the new curriculum that finally includes something pre-Roman in it? Well, the idea for the book came about before the new curriculum. Ah, Um, okay. I was working at the school on yet another mural, actually this time of um, Tim Peake, long before he was an astronaut, when he was a fighter pilot at, at Boscombe Down, which is across the road from the school virtually um they they gave the school some money to have a painting of one of their pilots on the wall as the modern equivalent they they thought of the Amesbury archer this this lovely guy came over and um posed for the kids and i I painted him on the wall and then he turned out to be a space man (laughs) (laughs) that is fantastic (laughs) yeah when i was when i was painting that the children were asking me lots of questions and i thought you know, it would be great to do a book. I'd always wanted to do a book for children. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, this is it, really. Um, if only I'd known how long it was going to take me and how, what a crazy idea it was. <laughs> I might never have started. But yeah. I anyway. bet. So, so you haven't got any plans to do another one? Um, well, I have, actually. Uh-huh. I've had a couple of ideas. Yeah, Brilliant. I'm not going to say too much. <laughs> no, 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 fine. Um, keep it to yourself. Um, I want to, We haven't touched on a couple of um, theoretical... Well, well, one big theoretical thing that you um, put in the book, and that is it's a very patriarchal society, the Beaker Society, and indeed um, every society that, that the archer comes in contact with, it seems. Um, women don't feature very much. The archer's sister um, it is very sadly taken away from being a girl just playing with everyone normally and then she has to be given away in marriage and things like that. Um, and so what what's the basis of that that interpretation of that of the of the early late Neolithic early Bronze Age? Well, I think the evidence from Beaker Graves suggests um, a society which is um, male dominated mm. um, and, and is perhaps even to go as far as to say that there's a, there's a warrior cult there. And it's a farming society and in farming societies it tends to be the case that they're patriarchal and that women are seen in a sense as possessions. Mm. Um, and, you know, what's changed really a bit, but, you know, we're, we're still fighting those battles um and i just i I, you know that that there is a case for giving women um you know more vibrant roles in in historical prehistorical fiction and had i had time the archer's sister's story would have been much more fully developed Mm -hmm. um but given the constraints of the space that i had i felt i simply had to go with with the idea of a, a patriarchy Yes. And as, as Jane says, that, that is what comes through from the, the burials that we see, um, where social status, which we're measuring here in terms of the types of things, the number of things that the mourners put in the grave, we, we find that men are given more things and things that we think are more valuable. Now, that's the kind of society that's represented in death and, of course, in life. It's different. Um, but the way they choose to bury their dead puts a lot of emphasis on males, and that's true across most of, the, of Europe at this time. But it's not to say there aren't strong and powerful women. Of course they are. You know, everybody's mum or their granny or their aunties or sisters, they're all important in different ways. Um, but in Central Europe, we sometimes see at this time bell beakers. We see graves of women who are as well furnished in a number of objects, as rich, if you like, as the men. And sometimes they have the status of men in terms of what's put in their graves. So 
it's status that's given to people probably at birth and that's the hierarchical society with very big differences between the people who have and those who have not but it, it it's a representation for the next world and it's not how people must have lived their lives it can't be like that it couldn't have been like that it isn't like it today even if some people might think like to think otherwise indeed i mean there are still you know structural inequalities but women um clearly have important roles and uh, to play and obviously we have a woman leading our country at the moment i think um uh it's interesting because when we talk about uh, i've done some research into representation of women in picture books of, of prehistory um and uh, and um they're often underrepresented in every period, whether it's hunter-gatherer or a farmer period. Um, and, you know, there are certain stereotypical things that women are doing, like looking after children and um, scraping hides, usually with a head down. <laughs> um, and um, it seems uh, like that possibly there is evidence for that in the past. Uh, and particularly, as you say, in the, in the farming societies, it becomes much more pronounced. Um, and yet, in picture books, we're trying. Is we're not only trying to teach children about the past, are we? In this, I think picture books end up being a way that young children also pick up about um, about what your role is, what their what what their role is in society based on who they identify with in the book. Um, so it's a real difficult dichotomy about how you represent people accurately, and yet also show children that that's not how things should be you know it's kind of um Absolutely. i know it's and, it's, a, it's uh, an impossible thing it. for you yeah, to do i certainly felt <laughs> it in doing this book um you know I, I i certainly just want to give young girls now the, the notion that women were not important but mm. at the same time i, I there's, yeah. there's a little point in in flying in the face of you know what what history Yes, I wonder whether we always, uh, I don't know, it wouldn't be enough really to put a disclaimer to say, this is definitely set in the past, because it's clearly in the past. So, But it's. Um, it, I think it's an impossible one to, uh, to not to, yeah, to untie, I, I actually. Yeah, if space, I would have developed a sister's story. Yeah, and she um, is quite, funny. yeah, she's uh, she is obviously sad about losing that status that she had, uh, the, the, the kind of freedom that she had and that she has to do this and she's still part of that journey and taking part in all of those bits isn't she and she has her own job to do where she makes the pottery um and I mean, so on i actually felt it was important to make that point you know mm. that she um she had to make those changes in her life I mean, as far as i understand it there are no beaker burials with uh, of women with um archery equipment mm. Um, anywhere throughout the whole of Europe, um, and I wanted to make that point that things were not great for, for women. Yeah. Well, indeed. And that their status was very different from the status of men. Exactly. And I mean, in many ways, maybe we were... that has some, you know, has had some impact sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's mm. the whole point. That's why we're, well, that's what we're fighting against, isn't it? Thousands yeah, of years absolutely. of this. So, yeah. yes. So, there yeah. you go. That I think that is um uh, it's just a conundrum that can never be solved. So, about how to represent women both accurately and fairly. Anyway, oh, um my next book will have a girl as a central character. Yeah, yeah. Well, have a think about it. Um <laughs> fantastic. Um well, so, can I, yes, Andrew. Can I just as yeah, put on my academic hat here and say there are some graves in, in the Czech Republic of women who are buried with the accoutrements of an archer uh, with wrist guards and copper knives. So the status is ascribed. There aren't, there aren't many of them, but it, it's down to how societies choose to represent themselves and then how we read that evidence. And often people read it in the image they want to see it in. Yes, it's true. Um, we do have, have uh, exactly, I mean, that's the whole point of um, post-processualism, isn't it? Um, <laughs> anyway, I wanted to finish with um, the Archer's Companion because um, he was, as you said right at the beginning, Andrew, he wasn't buried, um, well, he wasn't buried in his own grave, but then someone was buried very close next to him, wasn't he, who also had gold um, and was probably related to the Archer. Yes, just a metre or so away from the grave of the Angry Archer, there was 
for the burial of a younger man. Now, when the Avery Archer died, he was maybe between 35 and 45, so quite uh, an old person at that time because your life expectancy was no way as long as it is today. And so the younger man um, was about 20, 25 when he died, and he didn't have as many things buried with him as the Avery Archer, but he did have gold ornaments, gold tress rings like the Archer, and he was related to the archer, and that's an observation uh, made by my colleague Jackie McKinley, who looked at the burials of the two men. And there's something unusual about the, the feet of both the archer and the companion, and, that, and that's that some bones in your ankle that don't normally touch do touch. Right. And that's something that is probably passed through the female line. And it's not something you'd have been aware of. You know, they wouldn't have known this happened. It's just like whether you have brown eyes or brown hair. No, it's just something you inherit. But because these two men were buried side by side with a companion, according to radiocarbon dates, having died a generation or so afterwards, we can say that these men were related. And that gives us another insight into the archers. And we can talk about the status of the man as a, a metal worker and someone who travelled. But he also had disability. He lived in pain because of the injury to his leg. Uh, he would have spoken a foreign language. Clearly, at somewhere, a family was raised and one of his descendants is buried next to him. Mm. So it reminds us that, that there are other people travelling with the archer because his burial is made by people who understand how you would bury someone like this if you were somewhere in Central Europe. But the style of the burial on the right is actually made in Southern England. So there must be people travelling together in small groups. The, the archer, in probability, isn't alone, although Jane tells a wonderful story of the small group of young men who go. Maybe in the past there were women travelling with them as well. So we can think of the archer as many things as a as an iconic archaeological find, but the humanity of it is as someone who travelled great distances, made difficult journeys across hazardous seas, had new and maybe magical skills, but also lived in disability and pain, raised a family, and never, ever went home. They died in a foreign land. Yes. And I think that's... Um... Uh, that's how you end it as well, isn't it, Jane, where he he promises to himself that he will go and see his sister again and maybe go and see his father again. But we know that he died still yeah. next to Stonehenge, which is quite sad. Yes. Yeah. And he obviously lived with this injury for many years and uh, mm. quite extraordinary to think of somebody surviving with a suppurating wound. Um, yes, in, indeed. In the late Neolithic, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so... Um, what? Sorry, Andrew, go on. One of the things about Jane's book and her, her artistry is it, it's, it's very accurately and acutely observed in the archaeological detail. And when the Ainsbury Archer becomes a man, he's given a, a bone pin that is used to hold together his cloak, and he's given it with a message that's from my father and my father before me. And in the very last image in Jane's book, you can see this little bone pin that's like a T-shaped sticking out yes. out of his cloak. And, and I really like that detail because for me that the most similar object anywhere in Europe that I ever found like it comes from a place called Vinelts, which is just on the lakes of West Switzerland. And it's a little bit, the idea is a little bit of home in terms of his costume and how that costume was fastened together was carried with the Ainsbury Archer, even though he travelled to distant lands. So his clothes spoke of him wow. as being a foreigner. And I, I love the way that Jane, just early in the book, yes. showed yes. this. And in the very last image, the pin is there to remind you. That's, it is lovely. Um, yes, it was very consciously done. And I, I just remember talking to Andrew on the phone and his excitement mm -hmm. of having found this pin that, that came from Vinelts and the similarity between wow. that and, and the pin that the archer had in the grave, which was a, a, an old object then. I was going a, to... Not a contemporary object. I was going archer. to ask, did that, has that been radiocarbon dated and that comes out as almost an heirloom type thing? 
Uh, the pin with the archer hasn't been radiocarbon dated. This we kind of assume it's going to be about the same. But the one from the settlement of the Alps in Switzerland is from a slightly earlier period. So the style, if, if the Amesbury archer pin derives from that style, it, it's an old-fashioned uh, style of jewellery, as it were. So it's a nice, it's a nice thought. That's it's a, a very human touch. Yes, that is such. It's such an intricate way to think of an intricate detail that you've that you've woven through there it's beautiful well sadly um we've got to bring it to an end it would be lovely to talk on and on about this <laughs> um but uh we uh, we have things to do i'm sure that you need to go and do <laughs> have some food or do washing up, washing up. <laughs> oh dear <laughs> How sad. Cup of tea, yeah, that's great. You'd, or maybe a gin, that would be even better. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to know whether um, how, how people could actually contact you both if they wanted to know more information. So, um, uh, Jane, is it um, best if people contact you on Twitter? They can contact me on Twitter or on Facebook or through my website. So you're... Um, if you just Google me, I'm quite easy to find. Yes, and I'll put links to your website um, and and so on on my um, on the show notes. And Andrew, is do you is it best to contact you maybe through your um, University of Leicester email? Uh, yes. It, Would that be all right? <laughs> yeah, it'd be fine. I was thinking that the the thing there is the the best most accessible online material is still on the Wessex Archaeology pages. Yes, that's a good point. Which, which hasn't right. been updated recently, but it's still the best overall one. Right. And of course, we should say that you can see the Ainsworth himself, but his remains are displayed in Salisbury Museum. Yes, we should say that. I'll put links to all of those. And so, 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 so in a way, I was thinking, well, you want to find out more, there is... Um, Yes. Uh, the web pages, the museum, and uh, there's also the big boring book by me, which is an ebook. But we don't want to compete with Jane. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I'll, I'll have links to all of those. If uh, that no, would no contest. Jane's is much more interesting, entertaining read, and it's fashion of the web. book is absolutely wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing photographs of all the finds. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a good, good read, a great read. Yeah. <laughs> but coming back, yeah, just my Leicester account uh, is is the one because okay. it's the only one I kind of use for work purposes, so that's fine. Lovely. Thank you so much. I will put all of if you send me any links that you want, and I'll put them on the show notes. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think if people get read Jane's book and uh, get really into the story, then they they will go and get your book as well, Andrew. Um, uh, and the, this is interesting because it's kind of the contest between the fictionalised version and the, and the um, archaeological report. Um, but I think there is room for both in all our lives. So. Some, of my, some of my colleagues would say that mine's pretty fictionalised as well. Uh, <laughs> which is as it should be. It's an interpretation. It is. It is indeed. We should all acknowledge that, yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, you two. It's been absolutely lovely to speak to you. Um, thank you so much, Jane. Thank you, Kim. Thanks very much. Nice to talk, Jane. Bye. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Bye. <laughs> so thank you for listening to today's podcast with Jane Brain and Andrew Fitzpatrick about Archer, the journey to Stonehenge. And um, listen up for my next episode. I'm hoping to talk about the Rollwright Stones. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.